This morning's sermon text is found in Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1. I invite you to follow along in your Bibles, or if you need the Bibles in the pew rack in front of you, as I read Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him provided that you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which has been preached to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Sometimes we fail to eat the main dish of the biblical meal because we choke on the hors d'oeuvres. The meal is spread before you perhaps in your lap late at night, uh, or maybe it's early in the morning when you get up and you're alone in your study, the Bible is open before you, or maybe it's on a Sunday morning like this and the message is spreading the banquet of God's word before you. And you can uh, catch a glimpse of it, and you can smell the aroma, and then you choke on the hors d'oeuvres. What I mean by the, by the main dish is the, the rich, hope-giving, life-giving promises of God's Word. For example, in verse 23, the one I want you to think about and savor this morning is that phrase, the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel. The hors d'oeuvres I have in mind are problems that you bump into in, in the text. You know what I mean? You, you start reading the text to get some food for your soul, and all of a sudden you see something that looks like it contradicts something else you've read in the Bible or it doesn't square at all with your experience. And you get so hung up, and you're choking on this little hors d'oeuvre, you never do get to nourish yourself on the richness of the clear and powerful things that are there. It happens to me again and again, to my dismay. So uh, this morning, I'm so eager that the main dish of this text, the hope of the gospel not be missed, that I'm going to try to, uh, 
take three hors d'oeuvres that my guess is thoughtful hearers and readers choke on in this text and try to turn them from trouble into tasty uh, side dishes. Although when I started doing this, I discovered that they're really not side dishes. They are uh, main courses in themselves. In fact, it's all one meal. You'll see that before we're done. Let me show you the three hors d'oeuvres I have in mind that people tend to choke on. Verse 15 is number one. Does this verse teach that Christ is part of creation as the Jehovah's Witnesses say it does? It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. If you've got the New International Version, they've already solved the problem for you by paraphrasing it over all creation, but literally it's of all creation. That's what stands there in most of the versions. What does that mean? Is he part of creation? Second hors d'oeuvre that people tend to choke on. Verse 20. Does this verse teach that everybody's going to be saved in the end? Start with verse 19 and listen. For in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So universalists, ever since Origen in the third century, have used this verse to argue in the end, hell is going to be emptied of all of its inhabitants because they're going to be reconciled to God by the blood of the cross and the devil himself will be saved. Because it says all things will be reconciled by the blood of his cross. Third hors d'oeuvre that people tend to choke on is verse 23. This one's not so bad, but it's a little thing that tends to keep you from benefiting fully. It says that the gospel has been preached to every creature under heaven. Well, really? You know, you, you read that and you say, well, not in Spain yet. All right, let's go back now and uh, see whether or not we're really going to have to choke on these things and give up the meal or whether uh, we have misread them or somebody has and that they really are tasty morsels that are part of the main course. Let's go to verse 15. Is Christ pictured as, the, as a part of creation in verse 15 when it says... He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, of all creation. And the Jehovah's Witness would say, yeah, that's right. He's the first thing God made. He was the great angel, Michael. Let's take that word firstborn, first of all. That's, the ter that's a term in biblical thinking that in its most basic meaning is the first son that is born to a father, wife, uh, but then it becomes uh, broader in its meaning in that it is a reference to any exalted and preeminent uh, status. And the, the clearest example of that in the Old Testament is in uh, Psalm 89, verse 27, where it says, 
I will make David the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. You see, all that means is I'm going to give David a, a, a preeminent, exalted status on the analogy of a firstborn. So you come back to Colossians 1.15, and the first thing we should conclude is that Christ, because he's in the image of God, has a status that is preeminent, exalted, dignified, very high, firstborn. But it goes on to say, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now that little word of in English is a slippery little devil. Pulpit of wood. Teacher of class. Not the same. Pulpit is wood. Teacher not is class. There's a big difference in the use of the word of. It has dozens of meanings. You can list them all. So we have to ask, does this mean uh, firstborn of creation, like Ronald Reagan, commander-in-chief of armed forces, and thus over them and above them, or does it mean a firstborn of creation like pulpit made of wood? He's part of creation. Now, if it were all by itself, all alone, we'd be hard put to know what it means. But it's not alone. In fact, verse 16 which follows, begins with a little word for and signals us that an explanation or a support for this is coming. And it's such a wonderful help in guarding us, I think, from making a grave doctrinal error. Verse 16 begins with for, and so put the two together, it goes like this. Christ is the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things were created. Now, think about that for just a minute. He was the firstborn of all creation because he made all things. Which meaning does that point to? You wouldn't say, for by him or in him all things were made if you wanted to say he were part of creation. That is a clear pointer that the NIV is on the right track when it translates firstborn over all creation. Ronald Reagan, commander-in-chief, of, over, armed forces. And so I don't think we ought to choke on this hors d'oeuvre here, but rather, in fact, recognize that here is a massive meal in itself. And let me just pause and stress one thing from it for you to feed on for a few days. When you think of Jesus Christ in your mind, put alongside that very common image that you have of Crucified Savior, risen Savior, maker and creator. He made you. He didn't just save you. He created you. That's what these verses 15 to 17 say. He made all things. In him, all things hold together. When you get up in the morning and your fingers are still on your hand, thank Jesus. Because every physical law in this creation is a function of the mind of Jesus Christ. If he changed his mind, all the laws in the universe would be changed. 
He holds us in being. And in Him all things consist and hold together. He made you. He holds you. He saved you. He is preeminent. Worship Him. Love Him. Obey Him. Believe Him. So there's a meal, not an hors d'oeuvre. Number two, the second thing that people tend to choke on in this text is verses 19 and 20. This is, this is tougher yet, I think. People have used this ever since the third century to argue that in the end everybody's going to be saved. That the blood of the cross is so powerful and so effectual it's going to cover Satan's sins, redeem him and convert him back into a holy angel someday and empty hell of all the wickedness. It says in verse 19, For in Him, it is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, or your version may say God was pleased to make all the fullness dwell in Christ. But here's the key verse. And through Him, it is through Christ, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on heaven, on earth, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. So does all things mean devils, Satan, and every unbeliever that ever lived? Or does it have a more limited scope? I found a clue that helps me keep this from becoming a contradictory teaching. You see, if it does mean universalism, then Paul just contradicts himself. For example, it says in 2 Thessalonians 1.9 that there is an eternal destruction for those who reject the gospel. And so if this has a universal meaning, then we've got an apostle whose mind is divided, who speaks out two sides of his mouth. And uh, I have come to respect Paul very highly. I don't see that kind of double talk in his work, and therefore I'm disinclined to see it, meaning that. So I look to see whether there are clues. Look at chapter 3. If you want to, verse 11 and verse 10. And let me try to show you a sequence of thought that I think is very much like the sequence in chapter 1. In verse 10, Paul is describing Christians as people who have put on a new nature, new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So if we summed up that verse, we could say, He's teaching that through the redemptive work of Christ, a, a new humanity is being created after the image of Christ. The old, the old creation and the old humanity is, is hostile and estranged and rebelling against God, but God is in the business now through Christ of assembling a redeemed people, giving them a new nature, and shaping them into the image of their creator. Now, verse 11 says... Begins with the word here, or literally, as the King James says, where or there. Referring back to, to verse 10, he's going to say something now that applies in this sphere of the new nature or the new humanity or the new creation. So he says, here, in this sphere I've been talking about in verse 10, there cannot be Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, but Christ is all and in all. Now, picture somebody 
reading verse 10 all by himself, taking that last statement out and saying, Aha, see? Christ is in everybody. It's like Eastern mystics say. He's in everybody. Or he is all. Pantheism. And we're all going to be drawn together someday in a kind of mystical, reconciled harmony with the great being. Is that what it says? He is all and in all? No. Because Paul so clearly says at the beginning of the verse, here. Where? In the church. In the redeemed humanity, Christ is all and in all. So whenever you read words in the New Testament, these all words, all, all, all over the place, make sure you look at the context lest you read in to Paul meanings that may not be there. Let's go back and see whether or not there are clues like this in chapter 1, verse 20, because chapter 1, verse 20 does say that he reconciled all things. Now, does that mean the devil included? We forced to, to, to make Paul speak double talk here. I went back and I started reading the paragraph at verse 15, and I saw a development that goes like this, if you don't think this is right. Verses 15 to 17 deal with Christ as preeminent over creation. That is the old creation, everything that has been made. He made it. He is before it. In him, it holds together, and he is preeminent over it. So the point of those verses is to describe Christ's relationship to creation. He is over it, preeminent. The next verses, 18 to 21, I think narrow the scope and describe Christ's relationship to the new creation, the church, his body. So verse 18 begins by saying that uh, he is the head of the body, the church. And then it continues in that same limitation, I think. Not only was he the firstborn over creation, now he's the preeminent one or the firstborn from the dead. That is, he's going to raise from the dead a new people for himself, and he's the first fruits or the firstborn from the dead. So he's not only preeminent over creation as firstborn, he's preeminent over his new people as firstborn. And if you just go on reading in that scope, in that limited sphere of the church and the new creation, then you don't have to choke on verses 20 and you don't have to make Paul do double speak here. You simply say that he will reconcile or has reconciled by the blood of the cross all things in the sense that inasmuch as God wills for anything to be a part of the new humanity or the new creation, it will be reconciled to God or to Christ through the blood of his cross, whether in heaven or on the earth. So I, I don't choke on that verse either to keep me from getting to the main course here in this chapter. One more, verse 23. This is a little thing, and you may not ever stumble over little things like this. I do. Um, it says, the hope of the gospel which you heard, which has been preached to every creature under heaven. 
Now, what does that mean, to every creature under heaven? Or you could translate it, translate it to all creation under heaven. Both seem problematical. Well, first of all, I thought, Paul is in Rome, and he's in jail in Rome, and he had written a letter to, Rome, to the church at Rome saying that he wants to come to Rome so that they will send him to Spain. And the reason he wants to go to Spain, he says in Romans 15, 20 to 24, is because he likes to preach where the name of Christ has never been named. Nobody has preached in Spain yet. He knows that. So what's he mean here when he says preached to every creature under heaven? If you read Greek, you'll poke around in the Greek and see whether or not this is the best literal translation. If you don't, here's what you should do. That's 99% of you. You ought to go back and start reading the book again and see whether you find any clues that would tip you off that it need not necessarily mean that the gospel's already finished being preached to the whole creation. Let's do that. And you bump into verse 6, for example. And in verse 6 it says that the gospel, he refers to the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. He said, hmm, there's the idea of the whole creation, the whole world, but here it says it's in the process of bearing fruit and growing. And maybe that's what he means in verse 23, that the gospel is being preached to every creature and is growing and bearing fruit. And then uh, I went back and read it in the original, and in fact, a very good literal translation would run, the gospel which you heard, the one preached in all creation under heaven. Not that it's already finished being preached, but the one preached, it's a it's just a participle that defines the gospel. What kind of gospel is this? It's the kind that's preached everywhere. So you can see this is not just an hors d'oeuvre. This is really part of the gospel message too. It's a kind of message that's not just for Jews. It's not just for Gentiles. It's to be preached everywhere and is in the process of being preached and growing all over the place. Tertullian, who wrote uh, a book, De Principis, 100 years after this book, Colossians, was written, was able to say, we Christians are but of yesterday, and yet we already fill your cities, islands, camps, your palace, senate, and forum. We have left you only your temples." This is a powerful word. It had made unbelievable headway in the Roman Empire in those first couple hundred years. And as you know, virtually took over in the first 400 years, even though it was followed by great decline. Well, let's go back and sum up these three so-called hors d'oeuvres that people tend to choke on and notice how they're really part of the main dish. Verse 15, Christ is not a mere creature. He is the image of the living God. He is very God of very God. He made all things. He is over all things. All things hold together in Him, and He is preeminent 
above everything. That is essential to the gospel. If we lose Christ's preeminence over creation as God, we lose the gospel. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 that he preaches a gospel which is a gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The gospel has as its heart a Christ who can die for sinners. No angel, no man can die for sinners. A God-man can die for your sins. If you lose the divinity of Jesus, you lose hope. And the God of hope will be of no advantage to us because there'll be no gospel. Second, verses 19 to 20. God's aim is not only to make an old creation through the power of His Son, but also a new creation through the death of His Son. Notice verse 20. And we'll see the, the beauty of the gospel here in this verse and the next one. You and I are here in verse 21, every one of us, it says that we were estranged and hostile in mind toward God. That's the condition of the old creation, the old world. Everybody in it, you and me included, we are as rebellious and as bent on opposing God as any Khomeini or Qaddafi. Apart from the grace of God. That's the way we are. That's the world fallen in sin. And then look at verse 22, this magnificent statement of the gospel. Christ has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. So what we have in this non-hors d'oeuvre main dish is that God aims in Jesus Christ to make him the firstborn of creation by his power and authority and the firstborn and the preeminent and the head over his new creation, the church, by his reconciling blood on the cross. And finally, the last uh, so-called hors d'oeuvre that people tend to choke on, which is really a great part of the meal, in verse 23, namely, that the gospel is making great headway in the world. And the point of that is simply to, to get at the meaning of the gospel. It is not a limited message. It is not a message for Jews or Anglo-Saxons or smart people or males or good people. You don't have to be any of those to be saved by the gospel. The gospel is freely offered to every creature. And it is powerful. The power of God <coughs> unto salvation. So it's bearing fruit in all the world. And it is going to have great victory someday. The gospel is not merely... Now let's get this clear from this third hors d'oeuvre, so-called... The gospel is not merely a proclamation of good news. It is the word of God, the power of God unto salvation. Somebody gave me a little 
uh, we call it, um, plaque for my 40th birthday. And it now is in my uh, study at home, and it says on it from Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord strips the forest bare, and all in his temple cry, glory. A little picture of a bare tree on it. <laughs> I love it. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. The gospel is not just an announcement of good news. It is power. It is the word of God that goes forth and will not return to him empty. It is a sword that is sharp to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. It is the word of God which even though flower fades and grass withers, the word of God stands forever. And therefore, it is running and it will be glorified in the world. It will penetrate every tongue and tribe and people and nation. The ransomed will be gathered all the full number of the Gentiles will come in. The blindness, the blindness will be removed from all Israel and they will be saved. The Son of Man will come on the clouds with great glory and power. The wheat and the tares will be divided, the one into the furnace of fire, the other into the master's granary. And those who have believed the gospel will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Forever and ever they will reign with him. And that's the global dimension of the hope of the gospel. Don't ever limit the gospel to a mere offer of individual salvation. That it is, thank God. But it is a global hope because it is the power of God unto salvation and will accomplish that for which God sent it. Though we may be a little mustard-sized people in this big world, it is going to win what God intends it to win. And that's our hope. No matter how insignificant you may feel, you can be the part of something utterly universal. And I commend it to you this morning, both for your own personal salvation and for being a part of something magnificent in the world. Embrace the gospel. Stand on the gospel. Make the hope of the gospel the hope of your life. And as the text says in verse 23, don't ever shift from the hope of the gospel. There's some of you that need to make that decisive close once and for all this morning. All the rest of us need to take our stand afresh and resolve not to shift away from the hope of the gospel. And there's a song I want us to close with. The point of choosing this song is that it's a magnificent invitation that we sing to each other about the grace of God inviting sinners to close with the gospel. It's number 428, and let's pray for one another as we sing this song, Come Ye Sinners Poor and Needy. Shall we stand as we sing? 428. Almighty God and merciful Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus Christ, if there is anyone in this room that has not savingly closed with the gospel and ventured everything on Christ, 
Grant them no rest, I pray, in your love until they find their rest in you. And now may the God of hope who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, work in you that which is pleasing in his sight to the glory of Jesus Christ. And all the people said, Amen. Amen.